It is estimated that the world population consumes 1 million plastic bottles every minute. The environmental costs are barely ever calculated, and there aren't many solutions to our global plastic waste problem. Enter Rothy's, a fast-growing company that Forbes identified as one of the next billion-dollar startups in 2019. Their signature weaved shoes and handbags are made using a fabric created from recycled plastic bottles. Today, its co-founder, chairman, and CEO, Stephen Hawthorthwaite, JD96, joins us to kick off the summer series of The Legal Deep Podcast. During our conversation, we discuss how he and his co-founder landed upon the idea of creating high-quality fashion apparel and how they are building a highly profitable business using discarded plastic as their raw material. We discover how Rothy's goes beyond sustainability, aiming instead for a much more ambitious goal, circularity. Let's get started. Welcome, Stephen, and thank you for taking the time to join us. Jorge, thank you so much. Happy to be here. So I have to start by telling you that Rothy's has a lot of fans within our faculty and staff. <laughs> I, uh, I shared that I was going to be interviewing you today during uh, our a weekly drop-in with the Dean Zoom meeting, and people just lit up. Like there <laughs> were actually a few requests for discount codes. So, you know. <laughs> so as we begin right now, um, the Rothy's website shows that you guys have repurposed millions of plastic water bottles so far. The issue of sustainability is clearly a top priority for you. So why don't you tell us about how the idea of Rothy's developed and when did the idea for using plastics to create fashion products first begin to take shape in your mind? Absolutely. Uh, and Jorge, you know, it's, it's interesting answering the question because I started working on this or at least talking about it almost 10 years ago. You know, Rothy's has only been selling products since 2016. I guess on some level, you know, it started a long time ago in the sense that I had always wanted to start a company. And I think from a very young age, I was just always focused on doing the right thing and giving back to society. But, you know, beyond that, I, I don't think I really had any grand designs. I'm sure we'll talk more about my education at Wake. Yeah. Um, you know, after that, uh, I spent a number of years in investment banking and corporate development, focused on mergers and acquisitions and had the good fortune of landing in, or being transferred to San Francisco in 1999. So I worked on a lot of the early internet M&A transactions, digital media, and also e-commerce, as well as then consumer in investment banking and as well as corporate development. When I turned 41, you know, I realized I'd been in the deal business a lot longer than I ever thought <laughs> that I would. The, the, the original vision was to go get some business experience and see a lot of companies, meet a lot of boards and, and CEOs. And what I realized is you know, I'd spent the better part of 17 years helping people build their own companies. And that if I was ever going to do something, I'd better get started given that I was 41. And so Roth, who's my co-founder and has been a, a friend of mine for a long time, we were having dinner in uh, the fall of 2011. And at that dinner, we discovered we were both in the same place professionally at the same time, kind of looking for a new challenge and a shared interest in consumer. I won't go into Roth's background in a ton of detail, but he traded physical commodities for a while, and then he started and opened an art gallery that was focused on contemporary collectibles. His business was focused on a very rarefied world, and we had a shared vision around great product that could be for everybody. And I think the, the light bulb went off when it was clear that casualization was here to stay, you know, both at home, but also in the workplace. And women were wearing Lululemon tights or leggings all the time. 
regardless of whether they were going to work out or not. And so the original concept was to create a front of the closet shoe that was an easy choice that a woman could wear first thing in the morning through the evening and carry her throughout her day. You know, if she was going to yoga, dropping the kids off, uh, going to work and then out to dinner. And to answer your question specifically about sustainability, you know, we knew we had to innovate. We didn't want to be just the thousandth manufacturer of women's flats. That's undifferentiated. And then it's just a branding and marketing exercise and that's high risk. And as we really started uh, learning more about footwear, neither one of us had any footwear experience. We were really struck by how much waste there is in the manufacturing process. And so as you think about a pair of running shoes or a leather shoe, all that material is die cut into pieces that are then stitched together. And 30 to 40% of that material ends up on the factory floor as waste. So that was number one. And number two is, you know, incredibly long lead times in the merchandising and development cycle that just didn't really make sense to us. You know, 18 to 24 months of planning, Mm -hmm. the merchant's going to be wrong at the end of it. And they've either not produced enough product and missed a revenue opportunity, or they've produced too much and then they're discounting and having product end up at landfill. So we were just looking at all of this. And what we realized is, you know, the entire industry is set up that if you need a circle, you start with a square and then you cut out your circle. (laughs) And so we thought, well, you know, if we use knitting, then we can actually just start with a circle. And by doing that, we're only using the amount of material that is needed. You know, you could have a 0% waste product. And then as we got into it, thinking about it a little bit more, we realized it was early days, but that there were people that we could partner with uh, to create a proprietary fiber that was made from PET1 water bottles. That's where it started. And Um, what is that process again? That that was the the research that kind of gave you the idea to create the fabric. Uh, What is it called again? I don't know if there's a name for the process, but basically our partner starts with a PET1 bottle. Um, Mm -hmm. Interestingly, there are 1 million uh, water bottles sold every minute in uh, in the world. It's incredible. So, so the, the um, amount of ones you have recycled is a <laughs> tiny little fraction of Yeah, we don't, we don't have to worry about uh, raw <laughs> materials. We have plenty of supply, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and so they hot wash the bottles. They chip them, chip them up into flake. They compress those materials into a pellet. And then the pellets are extruded under heat into a very soft fiber. We have worked with them to create a proprietary fiber. And that's really what we start our knitting process with. And so where do they acquire uh, most of the raw materials, which is water bottles? Is it landfill? Yeah, so we use currently two different types of plastics. We talked about the water bottles. Landfills are obviously a great source of those. And, you know, they have other recycling programs as well. We also use marine bound plastic that's relatively new to Rothy's. We launched a line of handbags or our handbags business last year, just before the pandemic. And so far we've repurposed 200,000 pounds of marine bound plastic. So that is plastic that is within 30 miles of the coastline that is destined to end up in the ocean yeah. or may already be in the ocean. And in both cases, both of these plastics are certified under various governing bodies, are recycled, and that's really what we start with. So to answer your question specifically, landfills and other recycling programs. That's great. I think just Having the idea is one thing and then, yeah. you know, successfully executing on it is quite another. <laughs> and you, you've clearly figured out a way to do that. So to tie it in with your education at Wake Forest Law, how do you feel that your time here prepare you for the challenges that you've faced as an entrepreneur building a, a new company? 
Yeah, it, 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 it's a great question. And there's there's a lot to unpack there. Let me start with uh, let me start with Wake Forest. You know, so I, I uh, decided in college uh, that law school was a good path for me. You know, I graduated in '92. The economy was terrible, and going back to school seemed like a, a very intelligent decision. And the way I thought about it was that regardless of whether I ended up practicing, it was a great degree to have. We have a few attorneys in the family. And I think what I always admired about them is that they were very well-spoken, knew how to think critically, and knew how to write incredibly well. And I wasn't entirely convinced that I'd learned any of that in college. <laughs> so that, that was one part of it. And what specifically attracted me to Wake, interestingly, was the trial and appellate orientation and some of the programs around that. I had always been involved in student government and loved speaking, but one thing that at that point I think I, I had a lot of fear around was appellate argument because you're not just standing up in front of an audience and talking, you're really engaging in an intellectual debate. So I dove in headfirst to that, uh, spent a lot of time in moot court activities. I think the other thing about Wake was there were a lot of course offerings that I was interested in just you know to get the most out of my degree that apply in real life. You know, tax law, corporate law, estates, real estate law, and then the ability to explore some areas that were of personal interest to me. And as I really reflect on your question, I think a lot of it also was just taking volumes of information and learning to synthesize it, distill it down, and make a compelling and simple, potentially, argument orally or in writing. And that took me a little while to figure out in law school. I was very good at like getting into all the details, but it took me a while to kind of figure out how to synthesize it. And so fast forwarding to Rothy's, you know, for someone starting a company who really doesn't have any firsthand business experience, I've just been advising boards of directors and CEOs. A lot of that really came in handy, you know, certainly uh, from a structuring standpoint and how we set up our operations and, you know, thinking about things from a tax and governance perspective. But, you know, beyond that, when you don't have any footwear experience, you don't have any knitting experience. Those are two separate and unrelated industries, and you need to go learn everything about them and understand the competitive landscape to really take that and distill it down to a clear path, or at least yeah. <laughs> what we believe to be a clear path. And there's not a day that goes by in my current role that I'm not thankful to have a, a law degree. You definitely don't want me practicing. Right. Um, <laughs> law, but uh, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm right where I wanted to be, which is I know the right questions to ask and I know when to get an attorney involved. So that makes a lot of sense, gives you the tool set to mine your own path, essentially. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's getting to the level of success that you have uh, built Rothy's, uh, <laughs> I imagine took, a, took, took a, quite a bit of drive. So I'd, I'd be interested to uh, know what... Um, what fueled you during the early days of your company? Like what were your intrinsic motivators? What kept you going in those days when you, you know, <laughs> realized that you needed to switch from fabric to, uh, to knitting? <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm just reflecting on that. You know, what we've talked about really transpired over four years. So between 2012 and, and 2016, Roth and I funded everything ourselves. We bootstrapped. We were learning as we went. No one had ever done what we had done before. And we failed so many times along the way. And what was driving me at the beginning, I think, was the opportunity to combine um, a couple of personal interests and passions. You know, one is uh, starting a company, as we talked about, solving complex problems as we kind of look at environmental issues broadly. 
it's a very complex web of problems. So that was one, you know, I've always loved consumer and, and fashion for the creativity involved and how you put things together in colors. That, that was a personal interest. And also the opportunity to build a place that I wanted to work. Culture is something that companies talk a lot about, but we really wanted to get an A plus on that as well. And it really started with heart and creating a place that we wanted to work and where people were treated the way that we would want to be treated. And that really has manifested itself in a, a culture that's extremely humble and flexible and passionate about the mission. So it was really the opportunity to do that that kept me going. But what Roth and I joke about is that if we knew in 2012 what we know today, yeah. we never would have done this <laughs> because <laughs> we would have been terrified. Yeah, um, but you once know, you live through it, it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have the, so. the right context. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed also is that you strive to build a very equitable workplace. Uh, you're mindful and intentional about growing a com- your company in that way. Would you want to tell us a little bit more about that and how that came about? Yeah, absolutely. That was really something that was important from the beginning. It was obviously getting the most talented people we could involved. I mean, Roth and I have never done this before, right? You know, and people who weren't afraid to speak up and share their opinions. And in order to do that, you've got to have a culture that is very inclusive, where people aren't afraid to be themselves at work and bring their whole self to work. So I think inclusion, diversity, you know, has always been very important to us. We started as a women's brand. We probably will not be a women's brand forever. Mm -hmm. Won't comment beyond that at this point. We currently have 80% of our team um, in the U.S. is female. In China, about 50% of the team is female. And most of our executive team is female. And that's really important in culture and, you know, on other diversity fronts as well. I think we've done great work. There's always room for improvement, particularly with the events that transpired last spring. I think there's been a lot of very solid conversation around that in every company certainly is true for us as well. It's something we're, you know, continuing to focus on for sure. Well, you know, uh, sometimes when uh, you you read the business headlines, you get the impression that ethical considerations about unintended consequences of of a product on society might not be at the top of the mind of the entrepreneur or their board or their investors at the early stages. It sounds like it was for you from the beginning. Do you think there's room in the governance of uh, private companies at the early stages for them to ask these types of ethical questions? As in like, you know, just because we can, should we? Or do you think that hinders the creative process of developing a new product? You know, it's an interesting question. And of course, it's it's a balancing act. I, I think I, you know, fundamentally believe that people are good and that they want to do good things, you know, for society. Too much governance and oversight, I think, you know, can certainly stifle creativity. So I think there need to be safeguards at the appropriate time once you realize that it has the potential to create unintended consequences. You know? Yeah, I think but- <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask that because it was, um, it's very clear that when you arrived at the core of your product, which was getting your raw materials from what's essentially problematic waste at this point, you know, it's kind of a genius idea. And it was, you know, it's something that to me, it seems like it's a model for what we could be investing in or what we could be imagining to sort of lessen the impact we're having on the planet in in future products, future companies. It's the whole idea of doing well by doing good. Absolutely. And, you know, (laughs) it's something that we've focused on a lot from the beginning. And I I think one of the original observations, Jorge, was that we wanted to top tick three categories, fashion, comfort, and sustainability. Mm -hmm. And in the past, in the sustainability space, frequently, and this is a gross generalization, 
you know, products weren't as well made or they didn't look as good. And the consumer always had to make a trade-off in order to participate in sustainability. So what we were very focused on is if we make a great product that's beautiful and comfortable, there are going to be people who really don't care about sustainability, but they're going to buy it because right. it's beautiful and comfortable and then they're participating. Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of incumbent upon the entrepreneur to meet the consumer where they are and build it responsibly, right? And it's Absolutely. Now we are joined by Professor John H. Knox, the Henry C. Lauerman Professor of International Law here at Wake Forest University. John Knox is an internationally recognized expert on human rights law and international environmental law. From 2012 to 2015, he served as the first United Nations independent expert, and from 2015 to 2018 as its first special rapporteur on the issue of human rights obligations relating to the enjoyment of a safe, clean, healthy, and sustainable environment. Take it away, Professor Knox. Thanks, Jorge, and thanks, Thank you, Stephen. Jorge. This is really a, it's really a pleasure to be with you today, and, and I'm, I'm really enjoying the conversation so far. So professors, you know, we're kind of incorrigible. We tend to always revert back to the classroom. And so I'm going to start off, Stephen, asking the same question I start off asking my international environmental law class, which is, oh boy. what do you think the biggest environmental challenge facing the world right now is? Like when you look around from your perspective, what troubles you the most about, about the international environmental outlook? Well, John, I, I'm relieved to hear your question. I thought you were going to say, will you please stand up? since you were talking about <laughs> harkening back to the classroom. Um, I also teach property law, so I could hit you with a rule against perpetuities question, but I, I have a feeling you'd prefer not to do that. So. No, let's not do that. Let's yeah. not do that. I, I would not be able to answer it at this point. Yeah, on the, you know, there are a lot of problems. The ones that we're focused on are in and around overconsumption and overproduction. And everything that we've done, you know, is really geared to you know, in some small part, start to address that problem. And so if you look at the fashion industry, you look at the footwear industry, particularly fast fashion, you've got companies that are just producing so much product that very short consumer lives and end up getting thrown out. Or uh, like we were talking about before in, you know, the traditional merchandising cycle of, you know, 18 to 24 months, so much of that product, you know, there is overproduction, excess inventory, discounting landfill and what goes hand in hand with you know that overconsumption and overproduction is many of the problems that are on the list right uh, climate change labor practices you know pollution you name it and so indirectly i think you know we're we're touching on those but you've got to kind of pick a lane and that's uh you know that's where we're focused you know i think the us is doing a good job internationally, countries are in different places, uh, I think, depending on their, their government, and everyone is in a different place on this journey. You know, when I, when I ask my students this question, they often start by giving specific problems, and then they reach the conclusion, which you kind of started off with, which is that the real problems are the underlying root causes, you know, overconsumption, overproduction, which drives so much of our problems with climate change, loss of biodiversity, and, you know, so many other things. What should the responsibility of businesses be in this respect? Should it be primarily up to governments to kind of take the lead and set the standards, or do businesses have a responsibility to step out front? John, I, I think 
businesses have a very significant role to play here personally. You know, my belief is that governments are good at solving some problems, but that most problems are best solved in the private sector by companies, you know, in a, it, well, in a free market economy or in a democratic country. We're certainly trying to do our part, as I was talking about with Jorge, you know, you can pass all the rules and regulations that you want. You can try to change corporate behavior, company behavior. How we're approaching this is that if you can deliver a great product that's compelling without asking the customer to really sacrifice something in the process, then you're driving change. And, and so that's the way that we're thinking about it. I, I think this is much broader than you know, sustainability and you know, really outside the scope of this, uh, this call. But I think we've seen a lot of that over the past year where the younger generations you know, are looking to companies and brands specifically to solve a lot of these problems and take stances on many of the social issues because they're not getting the answers from the government. You can't solve everything and you've got you've to approach it in a brand right way. There are some topics that don't make sense for us to really have a viewpoint on. But internally, I think, you know, that's where a lot of those, we make sure that, you know, we're coming to work every day in a way that makes everybody feel good. Rothy's really, I think, does walk the walk on this and not just talk the talk, which is, uh, and I'm not just saying this, it's really admirable how committed Rothy's is to sustainability. I, I think you might agree with me, though, that a number of companies are better at talking the talk of sustainability than they are actually making the hard decisions necessary to become more sustainable. What kind of what do you attribute that to? Is it is it consumer pressure or the lack thereof? Is it kind of will within the companies? Like why what explains why some companies are really leaders in this field and other companies uh, lag behind? Well, I, I agree with you. It's, uh, you know, a bit murky in the sense of why, you know, what, what I would say is everyone is on a different place in this journey, right? And we're pulling for anyone who is participating, you know, for some companies, it's a material story. For some companies, it's a handful of products. For some, they haven't done anything yet, but they're promising to do something within the next five years. And, you know, frequently that is coming from large companies. We had the luxury of building everything from scratch. And we had four years to kind of think about how to build it. And so what we talk about is, you know, we take a whole brand approach to sustainability. And so to really execute on sustainability, to really be sustainable through and through, by definition, you have to own your factory. So we built from the ground up, you know, with that in mind. And when you own your own factory, you're really controlling the process, you're controlling the waste, we know how our people are treated. And by the way, when I say factory, you know, everyone gets, you know, the classic factory image that you would see in the New York Times. Like our factory looks like an Apple store by comparison, just, just for the record, you know, and the team there is, you know, just uh, it's family and it's really hard to do. And I think it's dawning again, you know, this was a journey for us. If we knew in 2012, that in order to do all this, it was going to take four years, twice as much capital, and we had to build a factory. I think we would have been terrified. And if that's true, you know, for us, imagine what it is like for, you know, I won't name any names, but, you know, large fashion brands, right? You're publicly traded. Wall Street is counting on you. You know, this is important, but, you know, if you try to do what Rothy's has done, and you've got to retool your entire supply chain. You've got to now bring manufacturing in-house. You just can't do it. 
you know, given um, sort of the short-term mentality. So I think that really tends to drive the discrepancy you see between maybe who's viewed as a leader and who's uh, viewed as a laggard would be my guess. How useful in this respect are kind of industry-wide standards? If what you're suggesting is companies are in really different places, um, which makes a lot of sense, and it's certainly makes a lot of sense what you said, that it's easier to get this right when you're building it from scratch than it is to try and retool an existing system. A lot of attention in the consumer area over the last 30 years, really, going back quite a ways now, has been over trying to kind of set voluntary industry-wide standards that then, you know, can kind of provide a baseline, at least, that companies can can operate with. In your experience, are those useful um, or are they kind of window dressing? John, I just had this conversation with our head of sustainability, Saskia, who was head of sustainability at Method Products. And I think for someone who's never done anything, I think it's important to have those so you know what you're aiming for. If it's not authentic and you're checking boxes, consumers are going to know that. And so we don't, uh, I think Saski would agree with me on this. You know, we're not focused on checking boxes. As a brand, I think we just try to be who we are, which is not perfect. And we are trying to do our best, right? That's, that's our mission is to do better for people on the planet. It's not to do best, it's to do better. And when you start operating the land of superlatives, that's when you're, I think, very focused on standards. And we just try to do you know, what we can to be sustainable. And that effort has actually led to a company and a product that is more sustainable probably than most companies today. I really like what you said about when I was a special rapporteur on human rights for the United Nations, one thing that the United Nations would often ask us to do was come up with like best practices in some area. And I and a number of the other special rapporteurs kind of pushed back on that, basically just for the reason you said, saying, well, we're going to come up with good practices. That's that's hard enough (laughs) to come up with good practices. The idea that we should only identify the very best practices is kind of counterproductive because it actually undermines the good work that a lot of people or states or corporations or whatever are doing by making it sound like it's insufficient. And also how can you, you know, the idea of something being the absolute best is often quite hard to, to decide on. Earlier when you were talking to Jorge, you kind of emphasize the importance of not expecting the consumer or asking the consumer to accept a a worse product just because it's sustainable, that that's kind of unreasonable to expect consumers to to give up on comfort, you know, and, and have the peace of mind of knowing that they're wearing a recycled product or whatever. But at the same time, consu- do you think consumers are though, that, that sustainability is a factor that they take into account? I mean, how? Oh, a- absolutely. Yeah. It, it, no doubt. It is, you know, in my experience, it's not the primary reason that most consumers buy, right? And so if you were, you know, in downtown Manhattan and you saw a woman wearing a pair of Rothy's and you saw our blue halo on the back and you, you stopped her and said, hey, are those Rothy's? She's going to stop, you know, in the middle of Manhattan and you'll start to feel the emotional connection that we have with her, which is, these are the greatest shoes. They've changed my life, you know, incredibly. They're machine washable. And oh yeah, by the way, they're made from recycled water bottles. You know, people can feel good about it. It shows kind of what they stand for. 
But in my experience, it's not uh, to the point yet where it is the defining purchase criteria. The analogy that we always think about internally is, you know, to kind of make the point about having a great product. If you go to the grocery store and you buy the paper towels that are the recycled paper towels and you bring them home, you have a spill, you go to clean it up, use 17 paper towels to clean up (laughs) the spill. And you're thinking, you know, I should have bought bounty, right? (laughs) Uh, Right. And so that's how we, we tend to think about it. Right. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. You you want the product to do what the product is supposed to do well. Right. I think it's true that I think sometimes in sustainability, the idea of sustainability gets associated. I don't think necessarily accurately, but it gets associated uh, with the idea of kind of lesser quality, um, yep. that, it, that it does the job, yep. but not as well as something that's less sustainable would do the job. And the nice thing about your products is that it's kind of disproving that. Yep. Well, you know, I, I, what I will say, John, is that has been true up until the period that we just went through with COVID. In a strange way, I'm optimistic that COVID, you know, indirectly is potentially accelerating the importance of sustainable products. We already know people very focused on health and wellness going into the pandemic, certainly more so coming out. I think on the sustainability side, uh, just from a consumerism and materialism standpoint, I think people are increasingly focused on having fewer, better things, longer lasting products. And that's really what we're also trying to give to the consumer is something that looks good, but is extremely durable. And we're also sitting at the intersection here of a lot of other macro trends or headwinds, whatever you want to call them, I think that add further fuel to the fire vis-a-vis sustainability. And that's technology. We talked about health and wellness. I mean, I think there's the ability now to create great products using sustainable materials that maybe didn't exist 10 years ago. So, you know, very excited for the path that we're on. We think it's a, a, a big category. What I hear you saying is that technology, which is sometimes seen as kind of the the driver of overconsumption, you know, there's there's new products, we need to go have them. You're, you're suggesting that technology is becoming more visible, that it can be the driver of sustainability. I think so, to an extent. And technology, the term is all-encompassing. Yeah, I'm not just thinking term. of the internet, but like we have 350 or 400 knitting machines, and we've written computer programs that design our upper in one seamless piece. So in traditional footwear manufacturing, you've got a number of pieces you've got to put together. That process is ending up with a zero waste product, even regardless of whether you're using recycled uh, fiber or not. So the uh, technological know-how that goes into the programming, you know, writing the code, knowing how to work with the shoes. I mean, well, that's technology on some level that didn't exist in the footwear world before we get started. You, you alluded to this with Jorge as well. You know, part of being a sustainable company is taking your work conditions and labor conditions seriously. Could you expand a little bit more about why it's so important that Rothy's decided to own its own factory in China rather than relying on contractors as part of a supply chain? Yeah. At the very beginning, Roth and I went to China. And, you know, this was late 2012, early 2013. That's when we were touring a number of factories and really seeing the waste problem, you know, up close uh, for the first time. And we quickly realized, you know, between the waste, the fact that we couldn't speak the language, that innovation was going to be important and that it was going to take a long time, we needed to come back to the U.S. to do this. Sitting in an R&D shop in a factory in China, particularly when we knew we were creating valuable intellectual property, just to make a lot of sense. But when we came back to the U.S., the entire footwear supply chain 
had largely gone offshore here in the 90s. And we had to reverse engineer what was left of the supply chain, literally to the point of calling outsole manufacturers based in Germany or wherever to find out where their machines were here in the U.S. So we went to military boot manufacturing complexes because of the Barry Amendment for U.S. source materials. We ultimately ended up in Maine and we set up a, a factory in Maine with the intention to commercialize. And between the lack of supply chain, the lack of our ability to innovate regulations like the Made in the USA, we realized we were just never going to get there. You know, we could create 30 shoes, we couldn't get, create 3,000. And so at that point, you know, we took everything that we created privately in Maine and went to China. We started working with the best of breed contract manufacturers and our product is really hard to make. So some of the best you know, technical knitters who are doing sweaters were pulling out their hair, trying to, trying to make our product. And, you know, the more problems we ran into, we just realized that like, if we're ever going to get this right, we need to own this. The beautiful part about being in China is a couple of things. One is the entire supply chain is there. For example, in Maine, you know, our outsole that's on the shoe today, we spent a year trying to create in Maine, couldn't do it. We were able to do that in like a couple of weeks in China by comparison. So the supply chain is there, number one. Number two, there's a lot of technical know-how. Specifically in China, the work ethic is incredible. For us, you know, it just made the most sense to be in China. And the way we think about it is, I think we're setting a new example in China of the way that a factory can be. We don't have any of the traditional hierarchy that you see in, you know, Chinese factories. We're doing something good for the planet. All the employees are you know, very highly compensated, something that I think we're leading by example. One thing I will say on the sustainability side is that the same trends that we saw here in the United States in 2012 that led us to you know, go down this path, we've been seeing in China for the past five years, they're just unfolding much faster than they ever did here in the US. And you know, it's very important to the consumer, very important to the government there. You know, pollution is something they're starting to take very seriously. Their way of dealing with it is a little bit different. If they don't like what you're doing, they just turn off your power uh, <laughs> at the factory. But we are a Chinese American company. You know, we're very proud of the fact that we're in China and we've just got an amazing creative team there. Do you see yourself taking these lessons to other places in the world or, or is that kind of beyond the current? You mean in terms of selling our product? No, I mean, in terms of like opening up other factories, I mean, are, are, is this something like you, you describe yourself as a kind of a Chinese American company? Is that a solid jumping off point, a platform to sell everywhere in the world? Or do you see at some point you might need to or want to open factories other places in the world as well? Well, certainly given the infrastructure in China, you can be a global brand with operations only in China, or factory operations only in China. We only have one facility. We would benefit from having built-in redundancy. You know, what's nice about potentially having a factory in a different geography is, you know, from a fulfillment standpoint and carbon footprint standpoint, you don't have to move your product as far. So I, I think it's, you know, certainly something that we will be exploring. We're just not at that stage sure. yet. We have plenty of capacity in our current factory. On the consumer side, do you see these same kinds of, this kind of interest in sustainability and quality and kind of a circular economy, uh, kind of growing among other places in the world as well? Is this something that you see kind of in the future spreading throughout the world? Well, the short answer is yes. I mean, since we launched in 2016, we've had people write in from all over the world asking how they can get our product. And 
you know, again, because of the emotional connection with our consumer, it's the viral word of mouth that's really driving our business and the public interest in what we're doing. And so the press coverage that we've gotten globally, you know, on how we've gone about this being vertically integrated, the focus on sustainability has gotten quite a bit of awareness and the demands there. And once you know what your customer looks like, our, our customer is not based on a demographic as much as a psychographic. It's how somebody lives their life. They're on the go all the time. They want to look good and they want to be comfortable. Then it's very easy to find that customer wherever she is or he is globally. You know, we at Rothy's realize that global brands aren't built overnight. We're always very focused on whatever we do. We want to do extremely well. And if that means we have to do less, we do less. So international, you know, is on the immediate horizon as is, you know, continuing to open more stores. We currently have about six stores. We'll have 12 by the end of this year. We think retail, owned and operated retail is a very important uh, component of the offering. You know, it's a listening device for us. It's a way for us to interact with the customers. There are still customers who want to, you know, touch and feel and try on shoes. And that gives us an opportunity to please them as well. That's really interesting because I think the lesson some people may be drawing from this pandemic is that all shopping is going to be online, <laughs> you know, that no one's ever going to go inside a store again, but you're kind of pushing back on that. Well, we started online. Most of our revenue is e-commerce. It will always be e-commerce just by definition. We don't need to have lots and lots of stores, but it is an important part of the operation. And, you know, we're being very thoughtful about uh, where those locations are. And I, I think that people particularly as you think about the experience and the education side of what we're doing, it's more than just going to buy a pair of shoes. I, I moderated a panel uh, a few weeks ago with young environmental activists from around the world, including Africa, Singapore, Latin America, and it's really inspiring in a lot of ways. And one of the, this conversation is kind of reminding me of one of them in particular, a young woman that I think 17 years old, who started a recycling campaign in Singapore using social media. I mean, there's a lot of, you referred earlier on to the younger generation. There's a lot of interest in the younger generation, kind of how to live a sustainable life, I think. When you look ahead, how optimistic are you about how quickly we're going to be moving toward a truly sustainable world? It won't happen overnight, John, but I'm very optimistic that you know, it is a significant and important part of our future. And, you know, we at Rothy's are starting to distinguish between sustainability and circularity. We just announced a couple of weeks ago our commitment to be fully circular by 2023. That is a whole different ballgame, right? So sustainability is a very broad term. So many of the products that are produced don't really have an end-of-life strategy. Because we own our factory, we can design for end of life. And in footwear, it's particularly challenging in most shoes because so many different materials come together in one form factor that then have to be broken down. Your average running shoe probably has 35 to 40 pieces in it. Our most complex shoe probably has seven total. And that enables us to start to recycle shoes and then reuse that material in the production of new shoes and be fully circular by 2023. That's our, that's our goal. So I think sustainability is definitely part of our future. I think consumer is coming around to that and people are starting to differentiate and distinguish in terms of where they're going to spend their dollars. Well, thanks, Stephen. This is really inspiring. I'm especially, I'm really impressed that you're talking about circularity now as a way to move beyond <laughs> sustainability. I didn't, if we had gotten, if that had come up earlier, we could have spent some more time on that. I think that's really, really admirable. Um, and as you suggest, that's a harder, 
that's a higher standard than sustainability, <laughs> but that's one way to stay ahead of the curve here is to keep setting higher standards. So, so thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'll hand it back over to Jorge now. Thank you, Professor Knox. So uh, I want to close with one question and, uh, you know, as a distinguished alumnus, and since our audience is uh, the Wake Forest Law School community, uh, what advice do you have for our current students and early graduates in general? Well, I think off, off, off the bat, I would say, you know, to anyone who is thinking about doing something else with their law school career, absolutely consider it. I mean, a law degree is invaluable in any number of industries. And I think that's true today, maybe in a way that it wasn't 25 years ago or so, mm-hmm. 90, 96 when I graduated. But beyond that, you know, one thing that's always resonated with me is, is this idea of giving back. And so frequently when I was growing up, people would say, follow your heart or do something that makes you happy. And you know, there was never this qualification around and something that contributes to society. Right. So you know, that's what I would encourage people to think about. And then the other unrelated but important point is just you know embracing failure and never giving up you know we failed so many times along the way to get here and you know i think that grit um has really you know been formative in the culture and in our success Uh, you know adopt a growth mindset is what i would say with those words of wisdom we close this episode of the legal geek podcast I want to thank our guest, Stephen Hawthornthwaite, JD96, co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Rothy's. You can learn more about them and their efforts of attaining circularity in their product lifecycle at www.rothys.com. I also want to thank Professor John Knox for taking the time to add so many more rich layers to our conversation. In our next episode, we speak with alumnus Joshua Bussin, JD16, along with Professors Michael Green and Abigail Perdue, who help us go into depth about his experiences in his budding law career and the various judicial clerkships he's held since graduation. This has been another episode of The Legal Deek Podcast. The Legal Deek is a production of Wake Forest University School of Law. I am your host, Jorge Reina. Our logo was designed by Holly Swenson. Our theme music was composed by Jeff Tovar at jefftovarmusic.com and other songs are used under the Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening.